0: I read about a man who was describing, he got to watch live a tennis match between two of the world's finest players. Both players played well the entire match, but in the final set, in the final two games of the final set, one player just took the game to a whole nother height. He not only played well, he did everything superlatively In the penultimate game, he received his opponent's serve, and each time he returned serve with a winner. In the final game, it was his turn to serve, and he finished off the game all four points, a clean ace. Blew him off the court. It was as if he ramped it up at the very end to leave no doubt who the victor was. It was game, set, match. That is like what we have in this passage in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus has come into Jerusalem and he has been engaging with the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these religious leaders. And what we come to now, he's going to leave no doubt. I think that's how Matthew 22 is supposed to strike us. It's a very public interaction and he is ramping it up here at the end of his ministry. What we're about to see today, you know, this is, the, this is like Wednesday of Passion Week, right? So, so what we're going to see today has only a couple more days until the crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is it. This is, in fact, the final public interaction between Jesus and his opponents until they arrest him. This is the last one. And you'll see Jesus is elevating things to a whole other level. It is game, set, match. This is where he leaves no doubt as to who the Messiah really is. He leaves no doubt who the winner is. And, and, and now, if, if there was ever a point of no return, now the leaders of Israel, they realize they, they can't beat this guy. Not publicly, they, they can't say anything to, 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 to trap him or to trick him. And that's when they realize if he can't be beaten fairly, he must be done away with permanently and that's where this is going They think they're going to do away with him permanently, so they think. But anyway, let's recall the scene. Are you in Matthew 22? Let's recall the scene. Jesus has entered Jerusalem on Sunday, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, and he's done three prophet-like sign acts, three prophetic signs, the triumphal entry, the turning over the tables in the temple, and then the the, 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 the cursing of the fig tree, which withers, right? So these three acts. Then he tells three stories against the leaders, three parables, the parable of the two sons, the parables of the tenant. Farmers in the vineyard. We looked at that last Sunday, and then the uh, parable of the wedding banquet. Then he engages in his final Q and A. Now that's how the rabbis taught back in the day, right? It was a question answer format, and it was always very public. The idea is everybody would benefit from the teaching, and just like there were three prophetic sign acts and three parables, now he engages in three. He fields three questions, and each one is a trap. It's a trick. The first one was about uh, whether or not, we're going to look at the third, and just for good measure, Jesus asked one, at the end, he asked his own question, which they're not able to answer. The first question they get asked is that age-old question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I thought about uh, using that one for our text today, but uh, we'll save that one for April, and we'll come back to it. It's October, I thought we don't need Okay. The second question they get asked is this really obscure. This was asked by the Sadducees. It's this really weird hypothetical question about something about seven brides for seven brothers. Uh, do you remember this? Right. It's like uh, basically they're trying to get Jesus to admit that there's no resurrection at all. The Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection, and Jesus utterly like silences their argument. Right. He silences the thing about Caesar paying taxes to Caesar. Silences the the Sadducees' argument, and then this third. Uh, uh, question. It's going to be the one we look at today. In fact, before I show you how Jesus answers it, I'll show you. He gets asked these three questions, nails it. You can't trick him, you can't trap him. He wins. It's game, set, match. Here's how Matthew puts it at the end. I'll go ahead and show you the end. Here's how Matthew concludes. After all this back and forth, after all these uh, attempts to trick him, after that, and no one, verse 46 of Matthew 22, and no one was able to answer him a word. You couldn't even say it. I'd be like, what do you say? Nor from that day, I love this, such great understatement, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask any more questions. <laughs> Isn't that great? The religious leaders are like, yeah, we're going to take the L. Uh, we know, uh, we have been beaten, and so they're no longer going to try to reason with him. He's clearly won. We're going to do away with him. Uh, I say that to say they, they, they know exactly what they're doing. So, they've got the, they got the first two questions down. And now, at first glance, this, this third question, it doesn't look like it's an obvious trap. This one we're going to look at today. At first glance, it doesn't appear to be anything like, why, why would this question? Oh, but make no mistake, they were setting a trap for Jesus. So let's dive in. Matthew 22, verse 34. Remember, this is the third engagement. But when the Pharisees heard he had silenced the Sadducees, remember he he, I mean, like, not just answered their question, left them nowhere to turn. It was checkmate. It was game set and match. He silenced the Sadducees and all that nonsense about, well, there's no resurrection because of this crazy hypothetical they threw out. He silenced the Pharisees were actually, Pharisees were actually happy about what Jesus did to the Sadducees because they didn't really like the Sadducees either. They disagreed. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection. Nonetheless, they were glad for that, but now they had their own problems with Jesus, and now they're going to gather together. You see that? When he had heard he would signed the Sadducees, they gathered together. Note, that is a nod to an ancient prophecy. That's Psalm chapter 2. In Psalms chapter 2, it says the nations conspire. It says, why do the nations conspire? The, the, The leaders gather. It says the leaders conspire against who? God's anointed. In Psalm chapter two, you have the leaders conspiring to take down God's anointed. God's anointed being a word that means Messiah, right? Here you have it. Let me ask you, why do I point that stuff out? Why is it important that you know that this conspiring together against God's anointed is right there prophesied so long ago in Psalm two? Because I don't want anybody to ever forget. Jesus didn't just come out of the blue. He came out of the blueprint. All this stuff... He's fulfilling prophecy. Look, the whole Old Testament, every page of your Old Testament whispers the name of Jesus. It points forward to the one who is to come. And Psalm 2 is no exception. He says, there's coming a day, right, when these leaders are gonna conspire against God's anointed prophecy made, prophecy fulfilled, right there, before their very eyes. Well, what are they conspiring about? Well, they, they know they've been beaten Right? Their leadership has been beaten twice. And so they're all gathered around. They're having a little Pharisee huddle. And they're saying, Man, that was, that was a good answer about that. I thought for sure we had him on that taxes thing. Right? Because that's, I mean, that's how, that, buddy, you want to be Messiah. You start saying, Don't pay your taxes to Caesar anymore. Let's overthrow the government. Man, he had us there. Remember, remember what he said? He said, Bring me a coin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, respect. That was a pretty good answer. He said, Who's, Whose image is on this coin? And we all had to admit, that's Caesar's image. He said, well, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Whose image is on your life? You were made in the image of God. Then render unto God what belongs to God. Everybody was like, well, that's pretty good. (laughs) I don't know what to do with that. (laughs) So then he answers the Sadducees. So they're huddling up. They're going, we've got to find a trick. We've got to find a trap question that is so tricky that he's going to be pinned. And no matter what he answers, it's going to be wrong. And so they shoot their shot. They they just want something where, and oh, and think about it. Think about it too. He's public. It's in front of everybody. So if we can ask a question that will stump Jesus, then everybody, we can say, see, see, he's not as smart as you think he is. You don't need to follow him. He's certainly not son of God. And he's certainly not Messiah. And we can all go back to the way things were. The Pharisees can go back to being in religious power. The Sadducees can go back to all that wealth because they had a pretty sweet arrangement with the way things were with Rome. And everybody can go back to normal. And we can all put away this talk about Jesus Messiah if we can just trap him in public. And so they come in a very public setting and they shoot their shot in verse 35. This was their big gun. This was their trickiest question. And one of them, a lawyer, now, this is, don't think like modern attorney. This isn't a civil attorney. A lawyer here, some of your translations say, an expert in the law. What is the law? The Torah. Somebody who knew their Old Testament law. They knew the law of Moses. This one who's someone who devoted their life. So they bring in their big gun, and they ask a, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. Matthew tells us the motive, to test him. Make no mistake, his intent was to trap and to trick Jesus in his words. And here it is. You Ready? Teacher? Which is the great commandment in the law? To which the whole crowd went, Oh, you may not be impressed, but you could have heard a pin drop. Why? It's a question that it's the perfect trick question. That is a question, the idea, great here, what's the greatest commandment in the law? It's one of those questions where no matter what Jesus answers, it's gonna be wrong. Have you ever been asked a question that no matter what you answer, it's wrong? That's right, as a teenager, we called it algebra. (laughs) A squared plus B squared is failure. Why does math have letters? I feel you, Pythagoras. No No matter what he answers, why? Well, they figured Jesus has three possible responses all of which prove he's not the one from God, all of which have problems. And so no matter what he answers, he's pinned on the horns of a dilemma. And no matter what he answers, we can all agree he's a blasphemer and we can go wrong. I mean, think about it. If he picks one, I mean, he's got A, B, and C, basically. If he picks one, let me show you, let me show you his options, they think. Either he's gonna be trapped because he, if he picks one, that's implying the other commands aren't important. It's elevating one over the other. If he, if he says letter B, if he's like, uh, I don't know, <laughs> You know, y'all got me. Well, then, okay. See, everybody, he's not as smart as he thinks. And what they really think is, not, is letter C. What they really think he's going to do is invent some new command. All, see, they think he's been trying to abolish the law of Moses, All this, his whole ministry. And so if he invents some new command, thus implying that Moses doesn't need to be followed anymore. Here, I'm going to give you this, this, this different thing. Uh, let's just let's unpack these just a little bit. Um, why would it be a big deal if he just picked one? Remember, these are experts in the law. So, okay, okay, class. Um, how many commandments are there? Very good. It's not a trick question. <laughs> I've known this guy a long time. It's a trap. <laughs> ten, ten commandments, okay. Um, if, you, uh, if you were to go back as an expert in the law, and you were to add up every thou shalt and every thou shalt not, you would come up with 248, because the law is more than the Ten Commandments given in Exodus 20, right? There's lots of commands in there. In the Old Testament, there are 248 positive commands. That's the thou shalt's, And 365 negative commands. That's the thou shalt nots. For a grand total of 613 commandments. And they love to debate these commandments. They love to think about how all these things tied together. Now, to break any of these commands was a transgression against God's covenant with his people. But that's where the debate started. Um... uh, you know that you got well even today you'll 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 hear people say all sin is equal and I'm like yes I I know what you mean in the sense that any I mean ultimately every motive of our heart that goes against God it's I mean one sin is enough to keep you out of heaven so it's equal I guess in that sense but you can't convince me that all sin is equally equal in every way even in civil society, we don't treat all sin as equal, right? I mean, if you're an ancient Israelite who wants to honor the, the ceremonial law of God and the moral law of God, I mean, you've got in there like, uh, like uh, uh, thou shalt not murder, and then Leviticus 19, 19, thou shalt not wear a garment woven of two types of material. So like, if you're an ancient Israelite and you have a choice one day, you're like, I want to sin, but I don't know which one, uh, I'm either gonna murder somebody or wear like cotton poly blend. Like, do that, right? <laughs> you know, because it's not equal to the person you're gonna murder. It's very much not equal to, to them, right? So, you can see, even in that dialogue, you say, well, that, that kind of makes sense. Then, then like, wh- so what they would say is there were weighty, weighty sins, like heavy weighty sins, then there were lighter commands. Sorry, not weighty, weighty commands and lighter commands. And so then quite naturally you would debate which are the weighty commands and which are the light ones. So you you, you can imagine, everyone everyone had their soapbox, everybody had their, their sort of position laid out. Some people say murder. Murder would be the number one, you know, most uh heinous crime. Others would say, no, uh, I think it's idolatry because if you, you know, if you don't have idols, then that causes all these other things. Uh, others who had been robbed would probably say stealing, the eighth command. That might be uh, the number one. What's the point? Whichever of the commands Jesus lifts out and picks, he's immediately gonna alienate everybody who thinks it was something else. So it's, it's a trap in one sense. Even if he picks one, he's now gonna divide the crowd and the crowd's gonna be divided. Pharisees win. So they think what he might do is recognize that. He could do letter B. He could be like, all right, what's the greatest commandment of the law? I, I see what y'all did there. If you get me to pick one, then the people who think it's another one are going to be against me, and you're going to get the crowds against me. All right, good move. Pass. You know, I'm not going to answer that one then, you know. To which everybody would, quit, they would say, see, see, he can't answer a simple question. How could he be the Messiah from God? pinned on the horns of a dilemma, and there's no way out to be like, I don't, in fact, this reminds me of a dilemma I faced when I moved here. It wasn't long that I began to meet people. It didn't take long at all, and they would ask, so, preacher, Auburn or Alabama? (laughs) And I thought I had the perfect answer. I would always say the same thing. Listen, I'm not from here, you know, I've been like, obviously y'all have a feud, uh, I haven't, you know, I, I'm not from here, I don't have a dog in that fight, and so I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to cheer for them both. I've never had a person tell me they were satisfied with that answer. And one old lady cut me off. I'll never forget. I'd only been here a few months. I was visiting her in her home. She cut me off. And I've I've always respected this. I always feel like um, she said what a lot of people wanted to say, but like her filter had long since been removed. And so she actually said it. And so I gave her this speech about, look, I don't have a dog in this fight. I can cheer for him. She goes, oh, so you're a chicken. (laughs) I was like, I prefer non-combatant, but yes, I guess I... What, what's she saying? She's saying, by not picking one, you're just a coward. I would have more respect for you if, you, even if it was somebody I didn't agree with. And that's what the crowds are going to say. Oh, Jesus can't even—he can't even make a simple decision about this. Do you see? It's a trick. It's a trap. But what they—all oh, what they're really ready to pounce on. What they just know he's going to do. Why do you think over and over in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has had to say, "I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it." Because everybody's got it twisted that Jesus is somehow com- doing this completely new thing that is utterly, utterly unrelated to anything in the Old Testament. Nothing could be further from the truth. He's here to fulfill the law of Moses. But the Pharisees are just certain he's going to be like, actually, I'm going to hit you with something you've never heard of. So they're like, oh, do it. Do it, Jesus. Say some command that's like not even in the book. So, how'd they do? The trap is set. How'd it go for him? Well... See, that's the problem when you got a lawyer trying to trick Jesus about the law because <laughs> the lawyer was sort of a, the one who's an expert in the law, but Jesus is the one who, you know, gave the law. <laughs> so you got the, the only lawgiver and the only law keeper interacting. It's, it, was not, it was never fair from the start, right? And so he answers with an answer that has resounded through history. When he says, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And if you look closely in the ancient Greek scroll, there's a little mic drop emoji right there. <laughs> there's not, there could be. What do you say to that? This is a knockout punch. And while his opponents are really, I mean, it's brilliant. It's flawless. It, while they're reeling from that, he, he hits them with the second. He leaves no doubt. Game, set, match. He says the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, depend or hang or, or, or you know, rest on. On these two commandments, depend all the law and the prophets. Law and the prophets just means the whole Old Testament in your Bible depends on these two things. Love God, love people. Huh? Love God, the vertical relationship. Love people, your relationship with other people. It really is that simple. If you're here today and you're new to some of this, maybe it's been a while since you've been in church, or even if you've been coming a long time, can I ask you something? All of us, uh, have you considered, do you carry some religious baggage with you? A lot of us have some religious baggage. Uh, It could be that uh, 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 some folks heaped on us some some legalism or some some rituals that go beyond what's in the New Testament. It could be that those who were supposed to be the most like Christ ended up treating us in a really hurtful way. It, It could have been some system of religious works. Listen, doesn't Jesus have a way of wherever you are cutting through all that baggage with such simplicity? Love God. Love people. Jesus, what's it all about? Love God. Love people. What's the whole Old Testament driving at? Love. Love. Isn't it something that, Man-made religion seems to do then and it does today. Man-made religion. By this, I mean the, the sort of, the, the kind of extra rituals and, and religious and, and all these rules that are piled on to what Jesus says. Love God, love people. It gets piled on to the point where man-made religion did then what it always does. Man-made religion empowers the few and leaves everybody else out in the cold. It empowers the few. Sure, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're great with leaves everybody else out in the cold. And Jesus strips all that away. He says, love God, love people. That's a very short text today. Love God, love people. And just like when you rotate a diamond, can you imagine a beautiful diamond? You rotate, as you rotate it in the light, you see so many different facets of the glory of this gem. I want us to walk through this simple text. Love God, love people. And I want to rotate it around and look at some facets of of its glory. Let me throw up an outline here, just show you five facets. We'll do these, we'll move through these briskly. These these, these five facets, you can take a picture of this for the outline or otherwise, don't worry, you'll get a chance to write them down again. We're going to look at the brilliant answer, the worthy object, total devotion, the natural outcome, and we'll end with the scary question. The brilliant answer. Let's start there. Brilliant answer, worthy object, the total devotion, the natural outcome, the scary question. The brilliant answer. It's nothing short of brilliant, what he says, because instead of entering a debate, he gives an answer that is undebatable. It's, it's undeniable. It's unarguable. He quotes, he doesn't just pull a verse out of nowhere. He quotes from Deuteronomy, right? When he says, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. And by doing so, he doesn't just pick a verse, he picks like the most famous verse they had. You know, we might say the most famous verse in Christianity might be like, like I don't know, like John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It might be Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Their version of John 3.16, Philippians 4, their most famous verse, the one all the kids had to memorize was Deuteronomy 6.5, 6, 4, and 5. It was the, it was the uh, well, they called it the Shema. It had a nickname. Do you know the Shema? Have you recited Shema today? And the nickname comes because in, in Hebrew, Verse four starts, Shema Israel." It just means, hear, O Israel, right? Listen, Israel. Here it is, I'll, I'll, show, you, I'll show you exactly what Jesus quotes. Look at Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now why Jesus changes might to mind might be because he knows to love God with the strength of our will. It requires might. It requires strength of, of with the mind or will. Same thing. I'm not sure. He's the lawgiver. He knows best. But why was this verse so famous? Because right after this, Moses tells the people, this is the verse. Okay, God has rescued the children out of slavery in Egypt. They're about to go into the promised land. And this is the heart of Deuteronomy, which is like, I know, Deuteronomy is like, one of the longest sermons there is. I know that you think, I've preached one of the longest sermons that there is, but it was actually Deuteronomy. And in the middle, in the heart of this sermon, Moses is trying to get across, this is what it all comes down to. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And here's, here's his advice. Here's, here's how we're never gonna forget this. Look at the next verse. Literally, you, you need to know this by heart. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. In fact, parents, I'll just go ahead and say Make sure that before your kids leave your care, when, when they go out, make sure that absolutely they have to have the great commandment memorized. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second one's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. Great, now you may leave my home, right? Okay, you, like, I mean, train them in other things, but everybody got it? Okay, why? Because it's said, right? Here, it, it's the first and greatest commandment. Teach them diligently, talk about them. Well, when should we talk about them? Well, when you sit in your house, and when you walk, by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. That's a way of saying all the time. Always be talking about love for God. Can you imagine when you rise and when you get up? What if your first thought in the, what, what if your last thought before you went to bed was love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your right? Perfect. And then you wake up in the morning and your first thought is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's, listen, that. You start your day like that, you're going to have a very different day than if the first thing you do is reach for your phone and go through uh, the news and the, the social media feeds and all that, won't, won't you? Th- this is what it says. Bind them as a sign on your hand. They'll be frontlets between your eyes. This was a symbol that the ceremonially Jews would actually do this. They would have little tablets with that verse written in it. You shall, verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So fun fact. Jackie and I lived for 14 years in New York City, and the apartment we lived there in Queens was owned by a, a management company that, uh, that, that was Jewish. All the, the owners were Jewish, this management company. So you'd go into our building, go on the elevator, seven stories up, go down the hall, and when you get to our apartment there, uh, on the door, right there, as you walk in, on the door was this little plaque, little, little tiny, and uh, it had Hebrew letters on it. And it was an abbreviated uh, Deuteronomy 6.5. It was the Shema. And of course, any tenant who moved in was free to take it down. You could put up, you know, take it down and put, happy fall, y'all, you know, but that, <laughs> Yankees, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, you, you know, you could, you could take that down if you wanted, but Jackie and I never did. We treasured it. We loved it. I thought, what, what better thing in and out every day to see and for our children to see and to walk under like, and it just struck me, 4,000 years later, there's still apartment buildings that are, they're like, no, we can't forget this. And here, listen, I'm just trying to say, the answer was brilliant. Jesus didn't say, I don't know, and he didn't invent something new. He picked one. It's almost like he didn't, he didn't abolish that. He, like, fulfilled it. It all made sense. And Jesus like, yeah, that's what I've been trying to do since the Sermon on the Mount. I've been trying to show you, you guys have the law like written out all this. I'm trying to show you love fulfills the law. The answer is absolutely brilliant. Like, 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 like imagine it, imagine. So imagine they're debating and you could see somebody being like, imagine you had a bunch of Pharisees and they were talking about the great commandment. And somebody's like, I think the great commandment is number eight. Don't steal. Why? Because if you don't steal, you'll follow the other commands. If you don't steal, you'll never be tempted to steal another man's wife, which is commandment seven. You get that one in with eight. And if you don't steal, you'll never be able to steal a man's life. By murder, that's commandment six. You'll never steal honor that should go to mom and dad, that's five. You'll never steal glory that belongs to God. You'll never rob him of glory, that's commandments one and potentially two and three if you stretch, right? So you, you get all, and everybody's like, that's pretty good. And then somebody comes up and says, Counterpoint, what about commandment 10? Don't covet. Because you may not steal, but that doesn't mean you didn't think about it. Don't tell me you didn't occasionally want to steal. You didn't want to cheat. And a guy still has to sit down and covet stands out. I think covet's the most important. And somebody else says, but how does covet get idolatry? And the debate goes on and on. And the people in the pews are going, if you guys, the religious leaders, can't figure this out, how are we supposed to figure it out? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. Second one's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands, hang all the law and the prophets. Next question, love fulfills the law. And everybody goes... If you love God with all your heart, you won't break the first commandment. You won't have any other gods except God. You'll forsake all that. If you love God with all your heart, you won't make any idols. If you love God with all your heart, you won't uh, t- uh, uh, take his name in vain. If you love God with all your heart, you'll want to have a weekly rhythm of worship and rest to love him and to honor him called the Sabbath. And then, then it will overflow into love for people. And if you love people, you know what you'll do? You'll honor your mom and your dad. You'll, You'll... you'll you won't, you won't even want to murder somebody, right? You won't even want to commit adultery. If you love them, you won't even have that lust in your heart. You won't steal. You won't lie, and you won't it and all other 613. It's almost like Jesus is saying, exactly. Why did he say, did you catch that? Why did he say, everybody go, that's, that's brilliant. I know what, well, some of you are thinking. We get it, it's a brilliant answer, but you said there were five points. And if that's number one, like we're gonna be, the others will move faster. But it's brilliant answer. Did you catch that at the end? On these two commands, hang the law and the prophet. That word means depend, depend. The law and the prophet depend on love. Think of it this way. The whole Old Testament law, all these commands that God gave to his covenant people are an engine. Love is the gas that fuels the engine. Love is what makes the law go. Love is what animates the law. Love is what gives the law its power, its goodness, right? If it's filled with Love, it all comes down to love. And if you take the gas out of the engine, if you take the oil out of the engine, if you take what, what the engine needs, the law and the prophet need love or it doesn't work. And if you take all that out of the law, what do you got? Grinding gears and burned out engines. That sounds like man-made religion to me. Grinding gears and burned out engines. People gritting their teeth and trying to get leverage on God to figure out what he wants and do it and they're not very happy about it. Grinding gears and burned out engines. Why? That's the law without love. Jesus says, on the other hand, you love, and the law and the prophets depend on this. One more thing about brilliant answer. He could have said, serve the Lord, obey the Lord, right? Why didn't he say the first and greatest commandment is obey the Lord? I'll tell you why. Because obedience can be coerced. He's not interested in coerced religion or piety. He's interested in a love relationship. Here's here's how an ancient commentator, I say ancient, 500 years ago, here's how he wrote it. He means by this, that only the free service of our wills is acceptable to him. Do you understand that sentence? It's gotta come from the heart. Ultimately, the man who comes to obey God will love him first. God will not have the forced obedience of men, but wishes their service to be free and spontaneous. Isn't that good? He doesn't want your coerced, forced obedience. He's after your heart. And I just just want to point out that that quote about the freely offered, the free will of man offered freely is from John Calvin. (laughs) Elsewhere, John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, what does he say? If you love me, you'll naturally obey my commandments. Okay, he is the brilliant answer. And he is also the worthy object of your love, the worthy object. Uh, go back to verse 37. He said to him, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind. Hey, listen to me, if, if you're new to all this or if, if you're coming here or you're maybe coming back to church after a while, listen, y- 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 make no mistake, make no mistake. What Jesus says is, and there's two parts to this, the Lord your God. The Lord, he's the king. He is sovereign, but he's also your God. In Exodus 20, right, I am the Lord. No other God's before me. I am Yahweh. You can call me by name. We have a relationship. He is Lord. He is king. He is sovereign over the universe, but he's also your God. Listen to me carefully. If you're new to all this, listen, you got to hear me. That verse, you got to understand, you will fill in the blank with something or someone. you got to hear me right now you are right now loving something or someone with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. If it's not the Lord your God, I just want you to consider, I'm pleading with you, consider who it is. Consider what it is. And consider the outcome of that life. But the throne is never vacant. You will love something or someone. In fact, St. Augustine said, now we're going back 2,000 years, the, the ultimate root of your problems is disordered loves. You're loving something or someone the way that should only be reserved for the love of God and love of neighbor as self, right? So there's two parts to this. He is a worthy, the object of love is God. Is he a worthy object? Is God worthy of all your love? Because you're going to love something or someone. The Lord, you're God. The Lord, you're God. You're not, if it were just the Lord, yes, he is worthy because he's powerful and he is the creator and he made everything. But if that's all it was, think about this. Jesus is not saying that you need to love some cosmic life force. Some just sort of nameless, you know, personless, no, just, just sort of this, this divine force. Just love this impersonal God. He's saying, no, you love the Lord, your God. You are in relationship with this God. You are in covenant with this God. Do you know that love relationship? All right, so I can see if I can illustrate. Why is he worthy of your love? Um, so R.C. Sproul told an illustration about how when he was a professor, I cannot imagine having R.C. Sproul as a teacher. That would scare me to death. But, uh, but he tells a story about how he had these students that he, he, he knew they were dating, and Mary and John. And one day Mary walks into class and she is ever so subtly showing everyone this big diamond on her hand, you know, being real subtle about it, you know. And uh, R.C. Sproul says, uh, Mary, do you have something you'd like? And John's behind her just grinning ear to ear. He says, Mary, do you have something you'd like to announce to the class? She's like, what? Oh, um, yes. John popped the question. You know, and everybody claps and cheers and everything. Oh, it's great. So R.C. Sproul, ever the professor, always the teacher mode, sees his moment, and he has uh, Mary stand there. Oh, well, Mary, why don't, can I ask you some questions about this? So he's kind of nervous, not knowing kind of where he's going with this. And he says, uh, can I ask you, why are you going to marry John? And she's like, I mean, anybody would be totally nervous and like not, not realizing he's using her as an object lesson to the whole class. And so she's looking for some safe answer that she thinks he would, you know, um, because, well, because he's so smart, professor. He's so smart, you know. He says, that is a great answer and you'll get no argument from me. John is a great student. He does great in my class. But Bill, Bill has a higher average in this class. <laughs> Bill's actually... And of course, there's Bill going. How, how did I get involved in this? I right? And everybody kind of laughs. He's like, "What? What?" He says, "So why else?" And she's like, "Well, I, I, I mean, look at him. He's so athletic. He's so fit and athletic. Again." Sproul says, I, "I you'll get no argument from me." He plays a lot of intramural sports or whatever. But Bill, Bill's actually playing for our varsity squad. Bill plays like real athletics. Bill is actually a better ath-. and Bill's like, "Hey, I I don't want to be here anymore." You know, John's like, "Do I get to say anything?" Right? And now Bill, uh, you know, Mary's embarrassed when he keeps pressing. Why? I mean, technically, Bill's a better athlete. And finally, she's like, "Why? Well, why? Why?" I because he is polite and kind. To which he's like. What are you saying about Bill? <laughs> Why are you marrying John? And finally, in exasperation, she throws up her hand. She goes, because, because he's John. He said, that's right. When you ran out of attributes, you went to his name. Because in his name is wrapped up what? A relationship it's more than just he's smart and he's kind and he's athletic. No, no, no. He's all those things. Fine. But we have a relationship. When God comes to his people, don't you see? Your relationship with him is not just because he's holy and he's, he's the creator and there is no other bill, right? There's no other God before him. It's all those things. But you know his name. He's given you a relationship. That's why he says you love the Lord, your God. He's the Lord, but he's the Lord Your God, do you love him this morning? Has your love grown cold? Do you need to remember, go to his name. Go to his relationship with you. Let him pull you close and remind you of what he's done for you. Well, it's a brilliant answer. He's the worthy object. But notice, total devotion, total devotion. There's nothing halfway about this. What's the key word here? What's the key word? Anybody. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You hear it? The key word here is all. Jesus doesn't spell out heart and soul and mind as three separate entities. His point is all. Listen, you can't love the Lord your God with all your heart and let your mind wander to other gods. You can't love with all your soul and long after money and fame. You can't say, I love him with all my mind, but I feel no obligation to obey him from my heart. These things work together. It's a total devotion. Listen, I'll say it again. You will give total devotion to something or someone in your life. Jesus is saying, make it God. Fourth, the brilliant answer, the worthy object the total devotion, and and really, so far, we've looked at love the Lord your God. What then is the natural outcome of a heart that is in love with God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, what is the natural outcome, the natural outcome of a man, woman, boy, or girl who's so filled with the love of God is that that love overflows onto others. Can you imagine a, a bucket you're carrying that is so full to the brim, it starts to splash out? The minute you start walking, you're splashing that out everywhere with well, a heart is so filled with the love of God, it splashes out on the love of neighbor. And Jesus says, you are naturally, it's the natural outcome. You're bound to follow this second commandment. A second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus uh, points out here, by the way, uh, he assumes, and he's, he's right, he assumes we're very good at knowing how to take care of ourselves right? I'm very good at looking out for what I need. I, like, I'm great at that. So I don't need any coaching on how to do that. What he says is, the way, the way you're so good at looking out for your own needs, look at your neighbor's needs that way. Or, or how about this one? When you mess up, aren't you good at coming up with justifications for when you mess up? Like, there's always a reason. You should never jump to conclusions when it's about me. Right? You should always give grace. I give myself lots of grace. Why? Because I'm complicated. Right? You know, people, I need to I give myself a lot of grace because I got a lot of Jesus is saying, do you give your neighbor that same grace when they mess up? If you do, you know what you're doing? You're starting to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you give them the same grace? Does somebody do something terrible and you go, whoa, 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 they're complicated. If you do. You're loving your neighbor as yourself. That's all. Paul, Paul says, look, I mean, he, he's quoting from Leviticus 19, 18. It's kind of funny. That's exactly one verse before the two uh, material shirt thing. In Leviticus 19, he says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. If you're in here right now, just heads up, if you have vengeance in your heart or you bear a grudge, you must repent this morning, right now. Don't delay. It's gonna eat you up from the inside. It's sin against a holy God. It is sin. You need to repent from it. Ask for his grace. He will forgive you. And let's walk in newness of life, okay? So that, that's the command. Why? Because you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he gives my name again. I'm Yahweh. I'm the Lord. He's just quoting. Paul does the same thing in the New Testament, Romans thirteen nine nine thirteen nine. He says, for the commandments, you you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He does the same thing in Galatians 5. Through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Twice Paul says one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm like, that's a hyphenated, that is a long word. To me, I would say, Paul, that's a lot of words. Love your neighbor as yourself. He calls it one word. Well, for one thing, the Old Testament, they called the commandments the words. The Ten Commandments, they would have said are the Ten Words. Uh, why? Uh, because they hang together. And for him, it does come down to one word, love. Well, the law will automatically, love will automatically fulfill the commandments of God. They just will. Um, you you can coerce and you can force someone to be obedient uh, but ultimately it will be the natural outcome of love and that's really the jesus way i try to think of a way to illustrate this i try to think of like what would be the most needless law that could ever be written in the legislation of the federal government like um Like, what would be the most unnecessary law that could ever be invented? Like, imagine they're debating in the legislature right now about, and this is what I think it would be. I offer this to you. This would be the most, the number one, most needless, non-need to legislate this that there could be. It would be this. Uh, For every U.S. citizen who is also a grandparent, for every grandparent, once a year, at least once a year, by force of law, every grandparent in this country, at least once a year, must show another person a picture of their grandkid once a year. They must do that. It has to happen under force of law. I, you laugh because that if you know grandparents, they don't have to write that law, do they? You can make it once a year. You can make it once a day. Uh, you don't have to write that law. Why? Love. Love constrains. Love love overflows. You don't have to tell a grandparent, hey, by the way, let me show you a picture of my cute grandkid. What? Love. Love fulfills the law. That's what Jesus is saying here. You can love, and listen, you can follow the law with gritted teeth, like an old burned-out engine. You can grit your teeth and fine, I'm going to give, I'm going to serve, I'm going to do all this stuff without any love in your heart. But if you love, it's going to flow out. Amy Carmichael said it like this. Look at this quote. You can, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. It overflows. You can't help it. This isn't gritted teeth. Follow the law, this is spirit-filled love. The musicians are gonna come, and I promise you one more. The brilliant answer, the worthy object, the total devotion, the natural outcome, and finally, the scary question. Scary question. Why do I call it the scary question? Maybe you know where I'm going with this. To me, the scariest question is simply this. You've heard it. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, that's the first and greatest commandment and the second is just like it. So here's the question. Have you done it? Stay with me. Before this sermon, if I just polled people coming into church today, what's the most serious sin? What's the most serious sin? And you wrote it on a piece of paper. We would read them. We would read murder, abuse, human trafficking. I and mean, we would read the worst of the worst, devil worship. I don't know. We'd read all these, the worst sins. Isn't it something? If the, if the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself, then what's the most serious sin? What's the sin that is gonna cause all these other things and no telling what else more? It's to fail to do that. So if you're honest with yourself, and if I'm honest with myself, I stand before this text and I go, I haven't done that. Is there any hope for me? I'm not the first person to stand before this text. There was one who was there. You know, just a few days after Jesus told this, this is Wednesday, so Thursday, by Friday, he's gonna be hanging on a cross. The sinless, spotless lamb of God is gonna hang on a cross, and he's gonna pay. And and, and it's like, it, like, there was a guy who saw all that. He he was a guy, he saw all that. that. He, he went to the courtyard to kind of uh, at least from a distance observed Jesus' trial. He, he, he saw him risen from the dead. He became a pastor in the early church. He's the only disciple who lived to a long age. He became a pastor in the early church and he started firing off letters. And here's what he wrote to his church, who he knows feels like he did. I haven't loved God. I haven't loved him like that. I haven't loved him. What's the hope? This is the scary question. What do you do if you realize, I haven't loved God like this? And here's what he wrote to his church in 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us. He gave him the gospel. He gave him grace. Now watch this. Watch watch how it works. Watch the steps. First thing you gotta do is you gotta realize the commands have not changed. Love God, love people. They are perfect in their command. Then you gotta stand before those commands honestly and go every day when I walked out of that apartment in New York, there it was. Love the Lord your God. And as I walked back into my apartment that day, I thought how many times did I break that commandment today? Hmm? I gotta admit that. Then... I either gotta go to total despair, or I gotta go to legalism and try to make it up on my own, or I gotta throw the whole thing out, or, or I gotta stand before and somebody, I gotta hear the gospel, the good news. God demonstrates his love toward us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, Jesus, who is the one? Is there anybody who has ever loved God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind? Yes, there was one. He loved perfectly. And he died in my place and for my salvation. And now I realize I am forgiven in him. I am free in him. I don't have to earn any of this stuff. It's not a man-made religion. And then watch this. Watch this. is the best part. And then the gospel gets deep in my heart, and it's like a seed. It gets planted, and you're going to believe this. And then what happens, right? So I, I've, I've stood before the love God, love people. I've realized I've not done it. He has done it for me and my salvation. His love gets planted. And guess what happens in my life? As his love is planted in me, guess what comes forth? Love for God and love for other people. Amazement at his good news. Amazement at his gospel. More praise to him. More love for other people. I realize he's forgiven me. I can let it go with other people. I can have grace for others. It's like this this thing. It, It really was a brilliant answer. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would apply this in big and small ways to our life right away. That we would love you, love others. If there's anybody here whose love has grown cold, let today be that day they're restored. If anyone here doesn't know you, let today be the day. There's a lot of people with a lot of man-made religion baggage has uh, really hurt them, and they need to hear this simple truth today. It's about love, and thank you, God, for the good news of the gospel. For we who failed to love perfectly, you loved perfectly, and we love because you first loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?